Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Sally Kate Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about a pretty cool new offering from our friends at Apollo Podcasts. You can now find the play on podcasts on Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators such as us. You can listen ad-free, early access to exclusives, behind-the-scenes supercuts, and more on Apollo Plus. On top of all that, 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes directly to creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts at Next Chapter Podcasts. I'm here today with Lawrence Schrag. He is an award-winning composer born and raised in Montreal. He earned a degree in music composition at Berklee College of Music in Boston and did additional studies at Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. He is an incredible musician and I would say musical explorer who's written over 200 scores for feature films, TV movies, documentaries, and television series in Myriad styles, including ambient, intimate, roots, world music, and large orchestral scores. He also is the composer of the music and the songs that permeate The Tempest, the series that you've been listening to on Next Chapter Podcast. It is my honor to have Lawrence with me here today. Lawrence, welcome to the bonus content series for The Tempest at Next Chapter Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a, a privilege to be part of it. When did you know you were a musician? I think when I was about 16, I wanted to write film music. And I don't know where that came from or why. I want to tell stories with music in some fashion. And um, I have no idea how that emerged. Except, uh, uh, well, I started to play piano around then and it just seemed to fit. I don't know why. Was that your, that was your first instrument, piano? Yeah. And you started as a teenager. You didn't start as a child. Yes, I had uh, uh, an incident where I broke my back and I wasn't allowed to play sports. So I started to um, play piano. It seemed like a safer direction. (laughs) You were able to play the piano with a broken back? Well, I was in a body cast, but I could still move my hands, yeah. Is it is it a subject you want to get into, how the accident happened? No, I, as a Montreal kid, I was tobogganing. <laughs> of course. Of course. One of the most common accidents in Montreal, from what I understand. <laughs> Toboggan accidents. Yeah. How long did it take you to recover? Did you ever fully recover? Oh, I, I fully recovered. And, and but it, it allowed it. It was a gift because it it changed uh, the direction of my life and I, i'm grateful 
you had been an athlete prior to that, you said? Or you... Oh, you know, let's just say uh, the shortest book in history is Jewish Sports Heroes. I was not one of them, okay? <laughs> Career was not in that direction. And so you started learning the piano, and did you, at the time, were you just improvising freely on keyboard and, and yeah. learning? Yeah. I mean, I just, I liked a lot of pop music and blues and rock and roll. And um, I, I just started studying with someone who was a good fit. And it, it, he had gone to Berkeley College and, and um, I went, oh, well, if Leon could do it. Maybe I could do it. So. And what was his name, Leon? Leon Aronson. Uh-huh. Would we know any of Leon Aronson's music? Is does any? No, Leon was a, a Montreal composer, and um, at the time when I met him, he was uh, music director of Hair. So this is how long ago it was. And I figured if he could sit around looking at nude women on stage and and smoke pot, I, 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 that's a job for me. <laughs> Which hair was it? The hair on Broadway. No, in, in Montreal. Uh-huh. And he was the music director. Yeah. What exactly does a music director do? He makes sure that the performance is right, the arrangements are good, the vocals are, you know, everyone's got their parts, everyone's got their, understands their what they need to do, and, and he manages the whole thing. It's, like, it's exactly what a producer does in a podcast, but specifically for the musical entities. So vocals, musicians, performance, yada, yada. And you went from piano to any other instruments or did you just stay with the piano? No, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I stayed on piano. I'm a piano player. I'm not a pianist, and uh, which is a huge distinction. I, I'm, Can you draw that out for us? What is the distinction between a pianist and a piano player? A pianist you want to hear, a piano player you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I I can get around, and but uh, I would never hire myself. Hmm. So you the 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 instrument, the piano becomes a tool for you. Yeah, it's a writing tool for me. My my instrument is a pencil, or in the old days was a pencil. You know, I I wrote music. And do you remember the first thing you wrote? I don't, um, you know, when I was 16, 17, I would start hearing melodies and, and it would be like, oh, I had no idea where that was coming from. And uh, but I thought, oh, maybe I could do something with this. And would you so when you hear and I suppose this must I'm curious to know how it's evolved over time when you were young and you were just starting out as a composer you heard something in your head and then did you play it on the piano and then write the notes down as you were playing it not initially i mean not initially i was not skilled enough to write down what i heard at the time because i was just a, a starting musician and composer but i would hear things Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to translate it to reality yet. What made that translation possible? Going to school, studying, and um, 
I had a, a really great education. I was very lucky to to um, find a place that that was a good fit for me. I mean, I loved improvisation. I loved jazz. I loved blues. I mean, Berkeley was the right school for me. And at the time, when I I guess it was my third year, they were just starting a film music program, and I was in the first class of that. And um, I clicked with that particular teacher, and um, his name is Don Wilkins, and and he was a huge uh, inspiration for me in terms of wanting to do film music. And so, and did you know at that point when you went to study formally that it was film scoring and composition that you wanted to pursue? Totally. So what, what did it emanate out of a love of film? I love film. Yeah. And I love music. And I, went, oh, I wonder if I could do this. You know, I wonder if I could tell stories for film, you know, with music in some fashion. And, and it was, um, I have no idea where that thought came, but it was the right thought. And growing up in Montreal, there was national film board and it was, uh, you know, uh, everyone held it as a, place of reverence you know of all these beautiful short films and all of this artistic material and yes yeah, so i wonder if i could do music for them right and how do i go about doing that and so it kind of worked out in some miraculous fashion so you you specialized in that that was your focus at berkeley totally and did you pick up any other instruments along the way as you were learning uh, composition for film and underscoring all those no, things? No, I mean, as a as a composition student, you have to learn other instruments, you know, and play them and learn how they finger them. And, and you know, so I had to play violin for a semester or two and trumpet for a semester and clarinet for a semester. My, my trumpet playing was so bad, my, my roommates made me practice in the closet with the bell of the trumpet in my laundry bag. It was <laughs> horrific, a horrific noise. And yet, uh, thankfully, I wasn't uh, marked, my composition uh, uh, wasn't marked by my trumpet play. <laughs> but that's so interesting. So a, co a composer has to have a familiarity with as many instruments I would imagine as, as possible in order yeah, to. Yeah. You have to know how to write for them. You have to know what the ranges are. What are, are the sweet spots? What are, what, what instrument could work with this film or uh, what colors do you want to use? What's appropriate, um, et cetera, et cetera. You would never do everything just on piano. You need to color it and to tell stories. You need different, uh different instrumentation different ideas different possibilities an expansive palette what was the first film that you did musical composition for do you remember yeah i did uh, um you know in in boston i did some you know student films and and they were okay i mean it was all a learning process and and i'm grateful for them it was just a function of how do I get to the next level? How do I grow as a composer? How do I grow as a storyteller? 
did you set out then straight from Berkeley to go to Los Angeles so you could score music? I went to back to Toronto in Canada. I went to move to Toronto and um, because of my education, I got a lot of opportunities right away. I became a, a composer's assistant and he had hired me right away. His name was Paul Hoffert. And um, he was doing a bunch of movies and I was orchestrating, um, you know, assisting, helping out, whatever needed, conducting. It was a hands-on education. What I learned from Paul was, you know, going to graduate school in terms of live experience, life experience and, and musical experience. And, um, you know, 23 or something at that point. And then he said you know, he wasn't available to do something. So he's, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, had asked him if he could do a pilot. And he wasn't available to do it. And I got that opportunity. And then I had a partner, Glenn Morley, at the time. And at that, and we started doing TV movies at the CBC and doing a series at CBC. And, you know, as then um, it just kept growing. And I, I stayed in Toronto for about 13 years. And I'd done, you know, many movies, a couple hundred episodes of TV. Um, I was also working in commercials and I did hundreds of those. So I had an incredible opportunity in Toronto that um, it was my um, opportunities exceeded my talents. And I, but my craft grew significantly. And uh, at a certain point, I realized that I wanted to moved to Los Angeles because I could see the uh, my opportunities dwindling in Toronto in terms of what uh, there were the budgets were getting smaller so that the television budgets I wouldn't be able to use live orchestra or live musicians as much so I, I moved to Los Angeles when I was 35 and uh, you've stayed there ever since ever since what was the most challenging? project for you challenging in a good way i've worked with directors who are incredibly musical and very specific and they will call me out if things are even a frame late or two frames late something like that or they'll hear something and it will be not exact and there's very few people who have those kind of ears. As a director that I worked in China with by the name of David Wu, who was unbelievably exacting and um, great storyteller, but he's also a director and an editor. So he knew everything inside out. And I had to really work with such specificity and um, clarity with him. And that was... Uh, an amazing um, uh, collaboration because he pushed me in, in many, many ways. And uh, I'm grateful. So for you, the challenge is a director who's very exacting. And it's something that you actually feed off of that kind of 
intensity, that kind of focus on detail. Totally, totally. I mean, I, if uh, the more input I get from people who are, he he's also very musical. I mean, that's the other thing. Some and and, and it's a great understanding of film music. He was also a composer. So he knew, he could tell me things with a different insight than other directors who are not as musical wouldn't be able to do. Join Play On Premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. What in your mind or to your ear makes for a great score or musical composition for film? What what does it need to have to it? It should be invisible. It should be felt and not heard. It should have tell the story with the same character and spice that the actors bring to it. It should tell the story in a unique way. Ideally, is it something that you would get the story of a film just by listening to the score? I mean, if you listen to a score in isolation. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to hear scores that are generic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many wonderful scores that are uh, beautifully written and but characterless. And and I, I'm less, you know, they're, they're incredible scores. But I want, for me, I want to hear something that has a uniqueness and a color palette that's different and a storytelling that's different. What are some of your favorites? There are hundreds of, of scores that I find inspiring. I was originally inspired by Henry Mancini, um, Jerry Goldsmith. Henry Mancini as a melodicist, Jerry Goldsmith from a, a dramaturgical perspective, from a coloristic perspective. Um, and it goes through, I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of Thomas, Thomas Newman, uh, people who have unique voices and, and, but tell stories beautifully. Can you give us some examples of a, a Henry Mancini film that you love the score of? Molly Maguire's uh, Wait Until Dark. Um, really wonderful dramatic writing for me. Dramatic in that it, 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 it's, it makes you feel something strongly? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was inside the characters versus being on the surface. It, it sounds to me like great musicians are like great actors, transformational, totally invisible. Like you don't see the actor, you see the character exactly. when you see great that's acting. That's what I implied when I said you should be felt and not heard. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you should feel it. You shouldn't even notice it. Without calling anybody out. What would you say is an example of some bad scoring, bad, bad uh, composition for film or television? 
What does it, it get wrong? You can't really call it bad in the sense that that's probably what the director wanted. Mm. Right? So it, it, a lot of composers are, have done scores that they may not have been proud of, but it's what the director wanted at the time. Doesn't mean they couldn't do something different and for a different director. So that it's hard to say. It's not bad work. It may not have dramatically inspired me, but there's a lot mm -hmm. of generic work that is people want and Hollywood wants that is just like, uh, for me, feels insipid and um, on the nose. And um, it's just what's so. It, it, I prefer to do something that has a bit more character. On the nose, meaning it tells you how to feel. Totally. It, in other words, it's something that, that's patronizing to a listener or to uh, a viewer. But that's probably what the director needed. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not necessarily patronizing. It's not a function of good or bad. It's a function of what's needed. And sometimes the director may say, oh, this doesn't quite work the way I'd hoped. Can you help me out? And so all of a sudden you're, you're, you're having to do a cue that may be bigger than you would ever want, but it's what's needed. So do, is it possible that a great film is ruined by a terrible score? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I um, yeah, oh, absolutely. And I don't want to suggest who, what they are, but yeah, there, there's some that are just over the top and, and I've written cues that are over the top and, and I wish I could rewrite them. And it's just, uh, it's part of, it's part of our art is like figuring it out. Where do you come in in the process? Are you there from the very beginning? Does the director hire you in pre-production or do you start scoring when there's a picture? Uh, it varies. I prefer to come in early. And to know the story and to think about it and to, I mean, I will write themes as, as they're shooting because it's just, I, wanna, I want to have the creative time frequently. And if you just get something at the end after it's edited, you you're, have limited creative time to uh, suss things out and to shape ideas and to sit with them. For a little mm -hmm. bit so you just have to write and you you come up with thematic material quickly and you go i would much prefer to start earlier and to develop material and to bounce it off the director and to see if they'd like it and, and hopefully they will so ideally a film is being put together the director comes to you and says Lawrence, I'd like you to compose the music for this film. Mm -hmm. Here's the story. Here's who's in it. You start getting to work. Do you do you read the script first? Do you? I will definitely read the script. Um, I will ask questions about who the characters are if I'm unclear. Uh, I will try to get as much direction early on as possible as to what's needed and how to tell the director's vision of the story. Um, and do, just approach it that way. Do you go on location? I have. Do you but, find uh, it helpful? Uh, it's usually because I was uh, 
for some of the projects uh, doing some music direction and had to work with live musicians on set. Um, but for the most part, it's it's not that helpful. Had you ever done uh, Shakespeare? That's Never. Before the Tempest. Never. I was absolutely intimidated and uncomfortable and felt incredibly awkward and uh, privileged. <laughs> so this was a challenge. And in that sense, that's good, right? I oh, mean amazing. It was it was like to have material that's been around for you know a couple of years uh, <laughs> is probably pretty good material. And I, you know, I knew the Tempest, and I'd seen it and seen different versions of it, and um, I was extremely excited and felt incredibly. I felt it very daunting, you know, to to uh, even think about it. You knew Andy Wolk. I worked with Andy on many movies um, over the years, and um, he's a good director and understands story and knows how music works he he gives me a a lot of latitude which i'm grateful for he allows me to, he allows me to be creative but he's very um, open from that perspective and i'm very grateful when you found out you were going to do this project or when you accepted thank you for accepting doing it by the way the music is just phenomenal um, and it's really a great privilege to have had you work on it. I'm I'm just curious to know if if when you agreed to do it, did you did you go back and look at any film versions of The Tempest, or did you just kind of want to start with a clean slate? I did look at uh, uh, the version of The Tempest that. Julie Taymor directed uh -huh. and this composer that I uh, is shockingly talented by the name of Elliot Goldenthal. The one that leaps to mind for me, just that, that I knew of prior to uh, this podcast of, you know, if I, if I were, if anybody were to ask me, is there a film version of the Tempest? I would think of Prospero's books that Peter Greenaway film. Did you ever see that one? Yes, I did. Also amazing. And the the score in that one is so I mean it's I mean it's kind of like it permeates the film as well. I didn't go back to see that one. Once I saw what um Elliot had done for the other Tempest, <clears throat> I figured I should stop and not get more unnerved <laughs> uh, by how the brilliance of other other composers, you know, is just like, you know, uh, uh, otherwise inertia would set in and, and I would be uh, uh, really uncomfortable. So similar, I mean, it, you know, for actors, I can imagine it's the same, right? You know, you're going to play Hamlet. How many Hamlets are you going to watch before you do your own? I, I'd imagine you really have to thread that needle between being uh, intimidated and inspired, right? Totally. Totally. And um, the cool thing is the language is inspiring, the story is inspiring. So I, at a certain point, I realized just surrender to the words. 
and see where they take me you know, tell surrender to the story and see what evolves so when you began working on this were there certain core emotions or elements that resonated with you that you were that, that or or feelings that that came up for you you know prospero was uh you know a, a magician who was doing dark things for the but for an intent to go back to Naples to get his daughter married to so there's positive and negative on both sides and I wanted to figure out a thematic material that presented Prospero from a place of magic a place of darkness a place of light um, and how do you go about doing that from a thematic perspective and from a coloristic perspective um, and finding that you know the, the, all of that material you've been listening to the play on podcast bonus content series you can learn more about the play on podcasts at next chapter podcast website ncpodcasts.com that's n as in next c as in chapter podcasts with an s at the end.com where you can find other play on podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts like the 500, the 10, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts, and my producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer and editor is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcasts for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.